Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to talk to you about subjective and objective reality and how it applies to thought and uh, spiritual practice. Um, As usual, this is only my take on it. I don't feel attached to it, neither should you. This is just my way of understanding these things and uh, how they apply to my life, how they apply to my path. Um, So let's get started. So it's my belief that our experience of reality is a description. The world was described to us and that description was subjective. It was someone else's description of their subjective experience of reality. And that description was given to us using language. And remember, language is a cognitive faculty of the mind, which means that language is what the mind uses to put the world or our experience of the world into context. So you see, this is an important thing to look at. So to get started, let's look at some words. Uh, First, I'd like to look at the word objective, as in objectively real. For something to be objectively real, it must be free of personal feelings, opinions, and tastes. In other words, those things aren't objectively real. Your feelings, tastes, and opinions don't have an objective reality. It's like, What's there when you leave the room? Are your feelings there? uh, Is your taste there? Are your opinions there? Or do they leave the room with you? Think of it as, um, as an object, objectively real. An object isn't its qualities, okay? Now let's look at the word exist. For something to exist, it must have an objective reality or being. And this immediately pushes on the mind. This causes us to call certain things into question like, uh, do thoughts exist? Do memories exist? Um, Do my feelings have an objective existence? This gets really weird when we start looking at what has an objective reality and what may or may not exist. It's interesting. So uh, let's look at the word subjective now, Um, as in subjectively real. Subjective means that it's based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. It is the opposite of objectively real. And for something to exist, it has to have an objective reality. So you can see this starts to, you know, the mind starts to grab at things. It starts to, yeah, but, and what if? So... How much of what we experience is subjectively real and how much of it is objectively real? And since we're on the subject, let's look at the word real, which means uh, something that is actually existing as a thing or occurring in fact, not imagined or supposed. So you see, this begins to raise problems in the mind. Um, I believe that a lot of our suffering and frustration comes from trying to apply an objective reality to things that are only subjectively real. We're trying to make things solid and constant. And remember, the ego wants stability and consistency, but the problem is that there is nothing that is stable or constant. Um, And just to add something here, 
Just because the majority says that something's true doesn't make it objectively real. The word true gets thrown around quite flagrantly. Um, this idea that the majority rules is just an agreed upon concept. Democracy is just an idea. Remember that. You know, if, if I'm in a room with eight people and they all decide to eat thumbtacks, it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. But if we stick with this majority rules thing, we end up in a situation where it's like, well, the majority rules, we've all decided to eat thumbtacks and uh, you should too. I mean, why would, uh, why would we all agree to it if it wasn't the right thing to do? <laughs> I realize this is extreme, but I'm just trying to make a point here. Right? If we don't start taking some things apart, we're not going to move forward. Um, so we can get caught up in trying to prove our point of view um, or our opinions with this idea of majority rules. So we say things like, well, everyone I know says, you know, fill in the blank, right? Or we offer some stupid anecdote about something that happened to someone we know or someone's friend's cousin, and then we make decisions this way. It's, it's really wild. So... Uh, how much of what you believe, right, is something that you experienced yourself? Or is it the belief you have in someone else's experience because it fits the description of reality that you already have? And this is a tough thing to look at. It rattles the ego. And we hate to admit to ourselves that um, we have at least a few of these things. Um, at least a few beliefs that um, we really have no experience with. We, we, you know, these, these beliefs, they feel nice, so we go with it. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying, look at it. That's all. Like, we don't have to throw everything away, but, you know, you want to take a little inventory. Um, but I truly believe that when we become interested in the truth, we have to re-examine our beliefs. We have to test our beliefs and challenge them fearlessly. Uh, Chilgum Trungpa used to say that the Dharma had been burned, set on fire, and beaten over an anvil till there was nothing left but pure gold. And I believe that we have to do that with our beliefs. Um, and, you know, we see this inability or reluctance to do this type of uh, dismantling with things. Um, and we see it with the news, for instance. Um, people seek out uh, the source that supports their description of the world and when that source disagrees with their description, they just find another news source. They find someone to agree with them. Rarely do they uh, stay with the uncomfortable description and challenge their own morality. And I say morality because people believe that their beliefs are more morally correct than others, especially when it comes to politics. So uh, let's look at, the, uh, at this idea that the world is a description. Um, in a previous episode, I mentioned this idea of a widget and the mind not having context for this widget. Um, let's revisit that. Let's say that I present you with an object and we'll call it a widget. And now remember, your mind has no context for this object at all. It has no idea what it is. It has no idea what it's for. It knows nothing. So I tell you, I tell you what it is. I tell you what it's for. Um, I tell you about its qualities. I tell you whether it's dangerous or helpful. I tell you everything that I believe you need to know about this widget. Now, with this description, the one that I'm giving you, comes uh, thoughts and feelings. Uh, the body will either ease or tighten in the presence of the object. You will either experience concerning thoughts or pleasant thoughts, and it's all based on the description that I gave you. You will experience these thoughts and feelings 
every time you're in the presence of this widget, uh, your experience of this widget is my description. Not because of your experience. Think about it. The feelings in your body and the thoughts in your mind are because of the words that I used to tell you about this widget. Language is a cognitive faculty of the mind and it puts the world into context. So this is how the world is a description. How much of this description is objectively real and how much of it is subjectively real? Think about this. Just for a moment, uh, when you were born and uh, the world and every single thing in it was described to you, this is what I mean when I say that nothing is free um, of influence and distortion, and that's okay, but we have to remember that, right? We have to keep in mind that, we have, uh, that we've all had things described to us. Our moral stances on things are based on descriptions that were given to us by someone else's experience, or we help. I mean, let's, let's say it is, right? Well, was their experience free of influence, distortion, uh, do you believe that everyone you get information from is capable of that? Capable of seeing things free of that stuff? Um, some of you are familiar with the point I'm trying to make here, and you know how hard it can be. Um, this is an interesting thing to consider, and in my opinion, it's vital. We're trying to use the mind, not let the mind use us. So if we look at uh, the definition of objective, subjective, exist, and real, uh, we see where the problem lies. We see that we're definitely trying to make subjective experiences objectively real, and it's just not possible. That's the ego trying to make things solid again. It wants the truth, and there might not be an objective truth. So, And when we start looking at things uh, this way, uh, we can see why life's tricky. Everyone has a description of reality, and everyone thinks their description is objectively real and morally correct. So let's say that there isn't, that there's not a true objective reality and that things are simply a subjective relative reality that was described to us. Well, this means that we can change our experience of that reality. And now I'm not saying this stuff to be trippy and confusing. I'm just trying to show you that we don't have to accept things as they are. It's all malleable, especially the mind. If, uh, if our perception of things is a cognitive faculty of the mind, then we can change it. We can actually restructure our mind's cognition. I do this every day at work. Um, so for some of you, uh, all of this talk about the mind feels less than spiritual, but the reality is that the mind is the subtle body. This is spiritual. This is literally the spiritual work. This is it. The mind is the spiritual work. The mind is what the soul is taking with it from birth to birth. The mind is the curriculum. And once the soul works through this curriculum, it no longer needs the mind. Um, from a Vedic standpoint, which I quite like, uh, once the soul or Atman realizes itself as Param Atman and works through its karma, it merges with Param Atman or God. So even the soul is impermanent. Your infinite nature isn't the soul. <laughs> Your infinite nature is God itself. I mean, we start with soul because it's kind of an easy rung on the ladder. Um, there's a quote from a Swami. I don't remember who said it. Uh, Use one thorn to remove another thorn, then throw both thorns away. It's, 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 that, that's kind of what we're doing with the word soul. And you know, to bring this back around to the topic at hand, 
this was simply described to me. I have no idea whether it's true or not. <laughs> I'll say personally, the reason I tend to subscribe more to the Vedic standpoint on these things is because the Vedas have been correct about so many other things. So that's the reason for that. I also, much like my belief in reincarnation that I talked about in the episode on the uh, conscious and the subconscious, if the belief brings me closer to others and keeps me open-hearted and keeps me in love with all of it, then I keep it. But that's just the way I'm choosing to go through life. I, It's by no means you know, something I believe everyone has to do. I understand that. So this is just what I'm doing. If you choose the opposite, I don't know. So let's recap this. Uh, words are important. Uh, words used as descriptions are the way the mind puts the world into context. Uh, that's why language is a cognitive faculty of the mind. Language is how the mind puts the world into context. Language is how the mind puts experiences into context. It's everything. Um, think about any experience and then consider how many causes and conditions are involved in creating any given experience. And then think about the fact that each of those causes and conditions was described to you previously. They were described to you through language. Someone essentially told you how to feel about everything. And with that, you moved through the world, putting everything into context. That's how you decided what was good, bad, pleasurable, or painful. Now, consider yourself. Consider your body. Consider the way your mind works. Did they tell you that it was okay? Did they tell you it was bad? Um, the experience you have of yourself, of this body, was put into context through the language of other people. And this is a very interesting thing to look at. Uh, all of those descriptions that were given to you were subjective. This is so interesting to me, especially working in the mental health field. If I tell you that you're too much to deal with, and I tell you this over and over and over again, well, guess what? Yeah, you'll probably feel like you're too much to deal with. And that starts a whole new narrative for you. So... Uh, does that sound like a healthy self-concept? You know, I know that I've discussed self-concept before, but I believe that it's very interesting in the context um, of the point I'm trying to make. So a concept is an invent. Sorry. <laughs> so a concept is an invention to help sell or publicize a commodity. Uh, the invention or commodity that we're trying to sell or publicize is our personality. So in my case, it would be my Keithness. So. Um, a self-concept would be who you believe you are, uh, what you believe you are, all based on the responses you get from others. Now think about the widget analogy, right? Now think about this. When you are pushed into the world from the womb, you have no context for who you are. You don't have any mental health because you have no mentality. Your psychology is something that comes out of your interactions with the world. But from the moment of birth, the world starts telling you who you are and what you are. And uh, once you're born, your first job is to get fed. Uh, for instance, you learn to make um, you learn to make a sound that tells people or caregivers that you are experiencing sensations of discomfort uh, that indicate the need for food. But what gets said? In my case, it would have been Keith is hungry. So as a baby, I had no ego structure, right? I was just learning personal importance and by making this sound because I wanted food, I kind of started to establish my personal importance, but also I had no personal identity. So right away, due to my caregivers being identified with their feelings and their emotions, 
I'm being identified with my feelings and my emotions as well. And that's what's happening through language. They're telling me that I am hungry. This is what I am. I am hungry. Keith is hungry. Is he? <laughs> is that who he is? Is that what he is? So right away, my self-concept is being formed and it's being formed by the response I get from other people. So uh, we follow suit. Uh, we say things like, I am sad. I am angry. When what's really happening is that we're experiencing sensations in the body that due to the thoughts that are arising in the mind and how those thoughts are being judged by the mind are creating sensations in the body. And remember, I'm not the body. So the misidentification begins. So here we are again. We are right back to the space between stimulus and response. Those initial thoughts and those initial judgments descriptions that are arising in the mind are just happening descriptions. Uh, we are not necessarily choosing these descriptions. And what are they? They're subjective. What else? They don't exist. You can't show me the thought. You can't show me the opinion. You can only express it to me. And once we start expressing things with language, whether it's I don't sadness, enlightenment, God, whatever, we degrade it. And why is it degraded? Because in order to speak about it, we have to think about it. We have to engage the mind. And once we engage the mind, there is no longer presence. We are not present to it. We are now thinking about it. See, this is all crazy shit. I get it. And uh, I understand the irony of me using language to explain all this, but here we are. Uh, all I'm doing is trying to give you a different way of considering these things so that, you know, maybe the mind works a little better, a little different. Uh, maybe it gives you an experience in life that is pleasurable, um, hopefully a, uh, a peaceful one, hopefully one with more love and more understanding. So once we demystify what's happening around us, we can work with it. We can play with it. Once we can play with it, the mind and move it around, we can shape our experience with it. We can work through our karmic curriculum until we, because uh, until we do that, until we work through that karmic curriculum, we're like a victim to circumstances. And there's circumstances we don't understand. We're victims to the mind. We don't understand the mind. So that's the importance of trying to figure out what's real, what exists, what's just a subjective relative thing. So uh, that's it for uh, subjective and objective reality. I hope this was helpful. <laughs> um, if you don't understand what I'm saying, it's me. It's not you. It's always me. Um, if I'm going to decide that I want to try to explain these things, then it's in my best interest to learn to explain them well to you. My goal is for you to understand what I'm saying. So the onus uh, is on me to speak clearly. If you don't understand something, please ask. Reach out, ask questions, test me, push me. It's okay. I won't take it personally. I promise you. Um, if you're interested in the books uh, or t-shirts, go to the website, www. I don't know if that's even a thing still. Theinfinitesparkofbeing.com. Um, there's also a link there to Patreon where you can donate $1 or $5 a month. Um, also, all the social media, The Infinite Spark of Being. Um, and when I say to you that we've all done this before, that we've all been everything to one another, I really mean it. So reach out, say hi, 
we've known each other for a very long time. Don't make it weird. Bye.